Greetings ladies and bendelgents and welcome to this video for Fork This Life. Written by Jinxus2011, this video contains side story number 2. And as always I hope that you enjoy and if you do please consider subscribing. Side story number 2. The Devil Within. I take a sip from the simple teacup. One of the few remaining and calmly place it back on its saucer, looking with curiosity at the man opposite me. He seems unbothered by the mess around us, or that we were fighting to the death not minutes before. His cup sits untouched, coils of steam drifting upwards as he looks at me with a level gaze. So you say you wish to heal my story, I begin, my hands clasping gently before me. And I owe you that... But I wonder what it is that you hope to hear. He scratches his neck idly, the movement brushing his clothes. They're simple, not too far from mine in their fabric and design. Traveler's clothes. But not a mark on them from the earlier fight. An illusion, obviously, although I cannot tell what is obscures. He carries no weapons or markings, no clues as to where he comes from or who he is but it is clear that he is a master of combat. He managed to stop me, after all. Well, you attacked me out of nowhere. Something tells me that wasn't under your control, but I want to hear your reasons, he replies. Knowing why will not change what happened. Clearly, you believe that I am not your enemy, and you have accepted my apology with considerable grace already. Surely, then, you are hoping to hear something else, I ponder. He shrugs, smiling wryly. Fine, I won't beat around the bush. This house, he gestures around us, being a bit generous in calling it as such, with a half-demolished state it's in. Most of its planks were being replaced. There are very different ages in some places, and it seems to be built on top of a remnant of an half a dozen other houses, each older than the last. Not to mention the sheer quantity of broken pottery pieces scattered through the ground, no ordinary person can get into this valley in the first place. There are no cities or villages around for a few hundred kilometers, and there never has been. The only person here is you, he continues. You've been around for a long time. A very long time, too long, even considering that you're a master of key. Ah, I nod in understanding. You seek the knowledge of immortality. To my surprise, he shakes his head sadly. No. I'm looking for people I don't have to worry about out living. You as well, my eyebrows raise. For the first time in many years, I'm shocked. How did it happen for you? If I have to say it simply, I suppose I have the gods to thank for it, he sighs, not sounding at all thankful. Ah, a gift from the gods. I nod in understanding, much the same as how it happened to me. You did some great feat or which they rewarded you, I would guess. He shakes his head again, blasted if I know. The couple of times that I've met one to be able to ask, they just skirt around the subject. But anyway, you don't want to hear my sob story. You mentioned something about doing a great feat to earn your immortality. In a way, I nod, to be more accurate, being gifted immortality was simultaneously my feat, reward, and sacrifice. You wanted to hear my story, correct? Now that we're both the same page and we both have plenty of time, would you mind if an old man tell you his story? Shoot away. He leans back in his chair, becoming more relaxed. 
He still hasn't touched his tea. Well, I'm starting to think it isn't out of caution. Perhaps he simply felt no hunger and thirst since he became a mortal. I'm not such a young whippersnapper that's itching to go out of here. You know, I'm really starting to like that word. Whippersnapper. Not that I had the slightest idea of what it means. I take a deep sip of the tea again, working it around my mouth to make sure that it is ready for the retelling. It has been such a long time since I lost at a guest. Well then, pardon me for starting at the beginning, and if I suddenly attack you again, try and spare the tea set. I think I did rather well in these ones, but I'm a bit attached. To start with, my name is Anar, and I was born in a city. Not a particularly large one, or important one, but not a small one either. The city itself crumbled a long time ago, so I wouldn't bother you with the name or where it was. Suffice to say that it was a city, and there were many people living and working there. I was an orphan without father or a mother. To this day, I don't know nothing about them and my ancestry, but they passed, or if I was merely given away. To the best of my memory, I grew up in the local monastery. Living there was not rich, but it was not bad. We had food, clothes, a bed, a roof over our heads, although all fours were simple and always in short supply. There were simply too many of us, and the city had no orphanage, or rather the monastery was its orphanage. The monks there were kind and patient. I didn't know enough of my youth to be able to tell, but I suspect that the monks were even older than they appeared, benefiting the bodies enriched with the renewed by key. For the monastery was not a place of religion, although we were permitted to worship any god of our choosing, except the evil ones, of course. But a place the elders had built many years before to train in, refine, and teach the arts of key. We, the orphans, were not students at the monastery, in the strictest sense. As part of our upbringing, some physical training was involved, mostly just running around and helping carry things. We didn't learn how to use key or any of the techniques at all. It was for the best, a bunch of kids running around with key. Things would have gotten out of hand very easily. No, they waited until we were old enough to understand the consequences of our actions, until we were starting to mature a little. They gave us each a choice. They would help us find jobs of our choosing, if it was doable, and we would start a life outside the monastery. Or we could stay and help around the monastery, cooking, cleaning, and tending the gardens, that sort of thing. And if we chose the latter, we could also choose to become students. The work we did would take the place of the payment that outsiders had to provide in order to be granted the same teaching. The latter option was part of the reason that the monastery could be so interesting and, on occasion, dangerous to new outsiders. It was impossible to tell when the person carefully dusting off their benches or watering the gardens was perfectly ordinary or capable of leveling a building with their bare hands. I myself opted to stay and learn the ways of key. I was young and lacking in perhaps the misplaced self-confidence that so many of my peers possessed. I thought of myself as untalented and didn't believe that I had the skills necessary to work most jobs. Besides, I had never known the world outside of the monastery, and I was afraid to venture out so suddenly, even though I had known the day was coming long before. 
The reality is that I would have been perfectly fine. I ponder sometimes how my fight might have changed. Might I decided differently. I might have lived a normal, happy life, or it's just as possible that I could have become just another casualty. But how could that have known the decision I made in my youth, hardly older than twelve years old, would have such a large impact on my fate? Because of my choice, I truly became a part of the monastery. There wouldn't have been more than two hundred of us, almost like a smaller community somewhat secluded from the concerns and customs of the city itself. I paused to take another draught of tea, emptying my cup. It had been a long few hundred years since I had spoken much more than a few words here or there, and my throat is making discomfort known. Yet I had barely begun. Reaching out with one hand, I pour myself another cup of tea. The sounds of liquid as it fell into the only thing breaking the silence. I can tell you have some training in key, but how familiar would you say you are with it? I ask, swirling the tea around in my cup and breathing in the turmoil aroma. I know some techniques, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert. These shrugs. Key is most effective when used internally and for short range, and I prefer to keep my enemies at range, so I don't have an occasion to use it often. I learned it partially as a precaution for the other forms of combat wouldn't work, and partially out of interest. I see, I nod. Would you rather I skip over the training process early in my life? Nah, keep them in, he replies. They add flavor. Not like we don't have the time. True enough. I suppose it would be remiss of me to expect anything other than eccentricity from an immortal. Then again, I've never met another. They started off simply, gradually. They taught us stances, 81 of them in all. The stances were not straining, not physically. The true difficult lay in the tutor's strictness. The tilt of the wrist had to be just so, the positioning of the feet down to the millimeter. The shoulders, waist, everything had to be perfect. Once we had one stance adequately well, we would move on to the next, and the next, and then back to the beginning. When training was over for the day, they would have us sit in the cold stone. I had almost forgotten just how cold it felt to me, especially in those winter months. Close your eyes and meditate, focusing on your own bodies in the exclusion of all else. We train like this for a year, every day, although for only for a part of the day, of course, unchanging. At the time, we thought it was ridiculous. I would be lying if I said that the fair few of us didn't at least think backing out. After all, a good number of people we'd grown up with I would now barely saw anymore, out in the city with real jobs living real lives like normal people. A lot of us had thoughts that were starting along those lines of, I don't know anyone else but here, this is my home, or life would be easier this way. There were, of course, some that backed out of the training, choosing to stay an ordinary cleaner, gardener, or teacher for the young, or deciding that if they did, in fact, want a job in the city. We would still see them sometimes, the ones who left to work in the city. They would tell us about their work, what they earned, show us the new clothes and boots, and then they would ask us what we had been doing, and we all had to show them was the stances, to say that some of us were jealous wouldn't be that far from the truth. As for myself, I kept on, along with the rest whose vices stayed. 
I reasoned to myself that life outside the monastery would just be hard, or even harder than what we were doing, and there had to be some reason for it, didn't there? The ways of the monks were often mysterious to us in our youths, but there wasn't a single person amongst us who would describe them as frivolous or foolish, and not because we didn't know the meaning of the former. Everything they did had meaning, had purpose. And this was no exception. Every form of energy is only as dangerous as the one who wields it. I have no doubt that you have seen or heard of wizards or warriors that have been wrought untold havoc and destruction, but for the untrained there are few things that can go amiss playing with mana or physical strength, with the exception, perhaps, of some extreme cases. Not so for Key. Fooling around with Key is like bringing an unprotected torch to a coal mine. One wrong step, and the whole place is engulfed in a firestorm. Utilized by an untrained individual, key represents itself outside of the body as pure force. The danger of that alone is considerable, but inside the body, there is a natural way of things, pathways through the body. To an extent, these initiate the instinctively feel how to circulate the key, to deviate outside the natural pathways, against the natural flow. At that point, there'll be too much pain to control what they're doing, and their key would rampage through the body, tearing it apart from the inside. The stances were to teach us discipline, to follow the experience and the wisdom of the monks. They also taught us the patience and calmness, and, of course, the stances themselves had meaning. After the first year of training, they started to teach us how to transition from one stance to the next. Each stance could shift into a total of eight other stances. Suddenly, the 81 stances could be pictured and assumed with the eyes closed became 648 movements, and we were flawed. Before, we had felt that we were learning so little, but now we had so much to learn. So much, in fact, that we couldn't possibly hope to learn it all in just a year. But the monks knew this as well, and started from the nine core stances and the forms that branched from them. A comparatively small seventy-two in all. Even so, it was difficult. The monks made us perform the movements at a snail's pace, limbs creeping over slowly through the air in the courtyard that we practiced. Precision was the key, and they aimed for perfection. That year, we began to see the first inklings of the meaning behind the tutelage. We developed control over muscles that we had no prior knowledge of, even those on our faces. It was a strange day for me when I realized that I could wiggle my ears up and down, independently even. Our balance became impeccable, being able to walk along a suspended rope with only a little practice. Not to mention, our physical strength and flexibility increased by leaps and bounds. It was to the extent that our work at the monastery became a breeze, effortless. But again, it was difficult. Some of the more of us dropped out, and as we neared the last few months of the second year, there were barely twenty of us of that original orphans. There had been double that number when training first began. Some of us did better than others at learning the movements, and these things tend to go. I would say that I was around the upper middle range of the class. Not the best, but fairly good. By this point, everyone who was actually bad at it had left, so we did fairly well. 
then started thus teaching us 16 new movements, and we quickly realized that these new movements would allow us to complete the circuit of the movements around the eight course dances. You see, they had a diagram of sorts, all of those dances that depicted them as 89 points of a star, laid out on a grid three by three stars. At the center of each star was one of nine course dances, and the 81 movements we had learned from those course dances to the points of the star radiating from them. Each star also had movements to the eight stances directly around it, that is, the ones up, down, left, right, and the diagonals. The movement from stance A to B was also difficult from B to A, that is. As a quick aside, I should mention that this whole system of stances was developed by the monastery itself to be simpler to understand and learn. Other places would have taught it differently. But yes, the circuits. We weren't sure what meaning that had, but it had to have mean something. That thought was reinforced in our minds once we had asked one of the monks about it, and we were instructed not to perform connected movements in succession without supervision. It had to be something big. Nevertheless, we weren't stupid or rash enough to disobey the monks and to try to discover wit for ourselves, so we continued to train with our new movements. In the last month of that year, as we went through the movements once again, the monk training us walked along us and saw nothing that he could correct. He walked back to the front and, once we had finished the latest movement, he told us that we were ready. Our training was done for the day, and there would be no training the next day. We were to relax, steady our bodies and minds, and prepare, because the day after would be very important. We, in a single woefully insufficient word, were nervous. Nothing like this had happened before, not in almost two years of training, and we weren't sure what it meant for us. The monk had said that we were ready. That was a positive, but ready. For what? To be clear, we were young and experienced and having lived in the monastery for our entire lives, sorely lacking in knowledge in some areas. We knew that the monks were powerful and capable of many things that we were not. We had seen them lay their hands on their cuts and scrapes and the wounds began to heal, breathe flames to light up a fire and lift boulders multiple times their size. We had heard of magic, and we had heard the word key mentioned several times around the monastery. But, quite frankly, we knew next to nothing about either. We weren't even sure what the training was for, beyond joining the ranks of the monks ourselves. Still, we were told to relax, so we relaxed the only way we knew how. Meditation. When the next day came, we spent most of it in a similar fashion. Some light exercises, some meditation, then the night came and we lay down to sleep. But after what felt like hours of tossing and turning, I was more awake than I first lay my head upon the cot. I knew that it was hopeless. I would not be able to sleep. My mind was too fixed on the coming dawn. My heart eagerly beat in my chest in anticipation. I thought to meditate until dawn. The state of meditation is in some ways not unlike sleep. But perhaps I would open my eyes to stiff legs, but it was better than no rest at all. I could not tell how long I sat cross-legged upon my bed before my meditation lapsed into true sleep. 
How ironic that it is the body that I would not let us sleep when it was all I wished to do. But when sleep is far from our mind, it is the first day to approach. The new dawn had come and we were ushered into the courtyard. As usual, the stark contrast to the usual, however, instead, a single monk heading our orderly lines, there were dozens, including the head monk himself. His name was Vivald. I didn't know him personally, of course, but anyone who had been in the monastery for a while knew his name and face. I remember that he enjoyed meditating in the gardens, so I would pass by him on the occasion when it was my job to water the plants or weed. It became immediately clear to us that whatever was about to happen was very important, so we got into our orderly lines and stood ready to begin what was normally a relaxed pose. On this occasion, much more uncomfortable owing to the tense knot in my gut. Perhaps if we had known what was about to happen, we would be able to be more relaxed. The unknown has always been one of the greatest fears in people's hearts. Or perhaps knowing the true enormity of the situation, just how badly it was possible for it to have gone wrong would have only made it worse. I could not say, but I doubt things were as they were for no reason. As we had predicted, we were instructed to start going through the circuit movements at our own pace. Our own pace was identical. We had practiced together at identical paces so much that anything else felt odd. I was only just starting to first movement, but sweat was already slicking my palms. As we progressed from one movement to the next, the familiar motion slowly unwound the knot of tension in my gut. I may not have known what was going to happen or why, but I knew the movements. They were my solace. After a short while, we neared the end of the circuit and were promptly instructed to continue the circuit of movement until we were told to stop. So we did, feet beating softly in unison against the cold stone, arms twisting through the air. To me, it was almost like it was dancing. It was not a storm of motion, not a frantic beating of limbs. It was a measured, calm, and composed. One movement after the next, practiced in near perfection. The voice of the head monk Favald rang out in the courtyard, telling us that we would soon start to feel a burning sensation within us an energy wanting to be released, that the movements that we were performing would guide that sensation in a path, and we were to focus on it, remember the path, and that we would naturally feel how to keep circulating it. His voice was so calm and certain, like his words were not predictions, but merely statements of things which he knew were to come. The sensation came soon after, Faint at first, but soon growing clearer and stronger as I continued. It was like a string of the bow pulled to its utmost, straining for a swift release. Like a boulder teetering on the top of a mountain, a feather's touch away from the careening downwards. The feeling progressed around my body, guided by the motions following paths that they felt wholly unused. The energy, key, burned its way through them, painful, but at the same time, satisfying. I was wholly immersed in the movements, in the sensation of key flowing through my pathways for the first time, and, not having forgotten the head monk's instructions, unremembering the path it took. It didn't feel like I was doing it for a long time, but when I was finally snapped out of my reverie by the voice of instructing us to gradually stop, I opened my eyes to the colors 
of sunset. Chest heaving, clothes practically glued to my body with sweat and limbs trembling. I slowed to a halt. The key inside me was still only part way through my current circulation, and I instinctively guided it the rest of the way until it reached the origin at the center of my chest. I started in surprise. Had I done that? It was almost unconscious, but I had controlled the key. Not that I knew that was what it was. Now that I was paying attention to it, my key was static, unmoving. My attention slowly returned to the world around me, where the others were in, in a similar state of mind, exhausted and sweaty. We were congratulated and told that we had taken our first steps in being key practitioners. We were told not to experiment with our key without supervision, at least for now. We returned to our rooms and I fell into sleep quicker than more deeply than ever before. When I awoke, I felt as if it was the very first time that I had seen the world. Colors seemed more vibrant, shapes crisper and better defined. The chirps and calls of the birds seemed like a melody. Even the touch of the rough sheet covering me seemed more real than before. I chalked it up to my exhaustion when I'd fallen asleep. That is just my imagination, not that I didn't enjoy the feeling. Of course, it wasn't my imagination. Key changes the body, enhancing it, uplifting it. My senses really were sharpened, although it was only so noticeable because I'd been the very first time key had coursed through my body. Although they would continue to improve as I practice, it would be slower and more gradual than the first burst. Our training changed after the awakening. The movements themselves became a lesson concern. The more important was teaching us to control our key, guide it on that path. Of course, the movements helped achieve that, specifically the circuit of movements that originally helped us unlock the circuit our key. But there was no longer much focus on the movements besides those, at least for a time. This training was a strenuous and entirely different sense, not physically, not mentally, but we were unlocking controlling something entirely new to our bodies, stretching muscles that had never been stretched, so to speak. It was very difficult at first. Sometimes I was able to control my key without even thinking. Sometimes I would try my hardest with no response. It took us a month before the monks decided that we were capable of circulating our key unsupervised. I'm sure you already understand the key, once unlocked as an individual, accumulates naturally, but it does so slowly, ever so slowly, until it reaches the individual's limits, determined both by strength of their body and the nimbleness of their mind. Certain unique stats of mind, even such as simple meditation, can increase the rate in which it accumulates, but still, one could meditate for a hundred days on end and not reach their capacity depending on the depth of their meditation. Key circulation allows an individual the same benefits, increasing the rate at which key accumulates by tenfold, even with the basic circulation path. If experienced enough, an individual could do this while moving, the circulation eventually becoming instinctive enough to be done while the storm of combat, or for when less violently inclined than the tranquility of meditation. Tenfold and tenfold become a hundredfold. All of these were the main reasons practitioners are known to be so reclusive. After a particularly exhaustive battle, one could expect a practitioner to retreat to a private space and meditate for as long as a week at a time to recover their lost key. 
such a thing might seem strange or daunting to non-practitioners, understandably, but as key flows through the body of a practitioner it gradually changes it. An experienced practitioner can use the key as a substitute to feed the needs of the flesh, allowing them to go without food, water, sleep, or even without air, if need be, for extended periods of time. I have already mentioned, of course, that it enhances the senses and strengthens the body. It even increases longevity. It is possible to become immortal through key? Perhaps, but if so, such a method has been outside of my knowledge. But I digress. We were not at such a stage. If we wanted to circulate key, we would sit still and devote some time solely to that. We had been instructed to do so for at least an hour every day if we could. Although it didn't have to be all at once, we found that this wasn't a challenge, as we could simply do so an hour before sleep. The rejuvenating effect would even ensure that we were better rested than if we had slept an extra hour. The monks began to teach us about key and about what it meant to be one of the monks. The monks were those that had dedicated their lives to furthering the understanding of the teaching of key, developing the existing techniques and inventing new ones. It was the pursuit of knowledge, not for personal gain, but for the gain of future generations. Eventually, we would no longer be students but the elders, meditating on the ways of key and understanding of the children. It would be a simple life, with no riches or luxuries, but it would be a comfortable and fulfilling one. The monks in general could be expected to live long lives, in peace away from conflicts of the world. I must say, as a youth who grew up without any luxuries, the thought of them did tempt me. Sorry, I wondered what it must be like to walk around in fur boots upon my feet, rich garments of silk on my chest, and idly munching on a freshly baked pastry as I went about my day. Knowing that at night I would have a thick, down-filled pillow on which to rest my head. At the same time, I had lived as I had my whole life, and it turned out well enough. I thought myself a good person with good friends, and despite their previous attitudes, those who went to work in the city had started to express envy of our strength. Perhaps, I thought, even if I was rich, there was still so much to want. Perhaps people always long for that which they do not have. Besides, I had chosen my path, and I had walked it for two years now. To turn it aside would be a waste. We advanced, slowly, as matters pertaining to key are wont to do. We learnt more stances, more movements, different circulation paths and patterns with different effects. The air would pass the cold ski together more quickly under the heat of the sun, or under the light of the moon, or amongst the elements of nature. There were ways for those not as changed by the effects of key to need only one breath of air when a normal man would need a dozen. There were ways to heal injuries, ways to pulverize rock and increase strength, ways to make the skin tougher than iron. I would not say that we were once in an age talents, or that we had resources and training beyond that of all the others in the land, but I feel that it would not be an exaggeration to say that we were some of the strongest people of our age or at least those of our age below ten. Not that we knew how to fight. We would spar sometimes, yes, and think ourselves very skilled, very strong, but simply knowing how to use the technique is not enough. Knowing when to use them is much more important. Knowing what to do in any given moment in a battle is a skill that is born of only inexperience. 
and neither us nor the monks had much interest in us learning how to fight. Much time passed without much note happening within the monastery. Even things such as illness or disease didn't leave the lasting mark, as we were also resistant to those. Accidents of the scale that can kill or even just harm someone experienced with key are few and far between, and the monks of the monastery were very careful when experimenting with new techniques. I myself was partial to healing techniques. There were always people who need healing, not just people. The technique to speed up the body's natural healing process with key was well known within the monastery, but applications outside of human and similar races were less studied. The step to animals was not a large one, not until I tried heating some smaller animals, like birds. They were much more delicate than I was used to, requiring much more finesse. Power, precision, practice, that's what it took. And a lot of the last one, practically when I started trying to heal plants, plants are nothing like us in their structure, or even how the key flows through them. It took me the better part of four years to get a handle of how to do it properly. That accomplishment earned me some respect amongst the monks, and I felt as that I had finally earned my place there, as I'd added my understanding on the matter through the Hall of Techniques, where all such knowledge was kept for our peers of future generations to ponder on and learn from. I was no longer a boy, but a man, though if there was any difference to how I was before, it would simply be the weight on my shoulders as I helped care for and teach the next generation of the neglected and the forgotten. A weight that did not bear lightly, however calm and collected I presented myself as. It was around this time, I think, that the rumors began to surface. There was amongst amongst those who generally took care of any trips into the city market to buy things when it was needed. If I was to guess, it was him who first shared the news, him, or perhaps one of the outsiders visiting the monastery, it's hard to say. Murders, brutal murders, the type of which had never been seen in the city before. People ripped limb from limb, fist-sized holes straight through their chest. Well, that's what the rumors said. We didn't pay it much mind, at first. What troubled the city rarely troubled the monastery, after all and the guards would find the culprit before long, and they did, but the culprit was killed in the ensuing struggle. No tragedy at anyone's eyes. Well, it wouldn't have been if it had stopped there. The next day, one of the guards who had fought the original killer was found by his neighbors weeping over the corpse of his wife, with his hand embedded in her chest. When other guards arrived at the scene, he apparently went mad fighting and killing the few guards who had come with his bare hands. It was like the madness that spread throughout the city, not only to a single person, usually a man at a time, the killer would be found, there would be a massacre, the killer would end up dead, but the next day there would be a new killer. The city was consumed by it over the span of a single week. Many fled, many more perished, and the monastery was the last to be affected more by the virtue of its isolation from the rest of the city than anything else, I think. We rarely left, so who was there to be afflicted by the madness? But inevitably, it did happen. I remember smelling the smoke. There had been some fires in the city, but it smelled closer. I looked around and saw the sorcerer right away. The hall of techniques was on fire. I dropped my watering can and ran inside the burning building. That might sound like an opposite of what you should do in that sort of event, but
but I knew the technique that made my body resistant to fire, so it wasn't able to hurt me. And, as mentioned, practitioners are able to hold their breaths for significant lengths of time. My first concern was that there might be people inside that didn't know these techniques, people that might be suffering at the fire. To my dismay, however, what I found inside the building was a melee amidst the flames, the hall's custodian howling with laughter as he unleashed a fiery blows against several other monks. As I mentioned, the monks of the monastery were far superior to ordinary people in every physical aspect, but most of us didn't know how to fight. At that moment, somehow the pacifistic custodian did, and he was overwhelming the others with ease. For a long second I stood shocked into the inaction by the scene unfolding before me, but before long the custodian noticed me and brought the fight to me, despite my indecision. I was outmatched and I understood that instantly. It wasn't necessary that he was stronger or faster than me, although he was by a bit. But he had predicted my every attack, knew where I was going to move before my feet even shifted, tricked me into the path of falling beam, wounds accumulated rapidly on my body, stemmed only by my equally rapid healing techniques. Even after the others rejoined the fight, the advance of numbers only let us stay our ground. Then, something like a gust of wind blew through the hall, extinguishing the roaring fire in an instant. It was the head monk, Vavald. In mere moments he had rampaging monk restrained, holding the man's hands behind his back in an iron grip. For the barest of instants, I thought it was over. He would be locked away somewhere for the rest of his life, and things would slowly return to normal. But Vavald underestimated the ruthlessness of the deranged monk. We all did. With a sudden, wrenching movement of his arms, he tore out of Vavald's grip leaving both of his hands behind. With stumped wrists gushing blood, he embraced Vavald and smashed his head against the head monks. The impact caused Vavald to fall backwards, but didn't do much actual damage. Not so for the madman, whose skull had caved in. As the light faded from his eyes, his expression changed from an insane grin to an intense fear, and he flung himself backwards into me. After that one last movement, he didn't move again, slumping down to the floor. I felt a huge rush of something pouring into me, followed by a suffocating, claustrophobic sensation, as if I was stuffed into something not designed to contain me. Then I exploded into motion, but I wasn't the one moving me. It would not make sense. I was a spectator of my own body, unable to stop what my body was doing, unable to even close my eyes. My hand shot forward as I looked in the silent horror, for Vald still not comprehending that I was now his enemy even as my forefinger pierced through his eye and burrowed deep into his head. Whoever or whatever was controlling my actions wasted no time in attacking the other monks still there. When I finally left the all, my arms were encased entirely in blood. Needless to say, nobody was left alive. What happened next was a slaughter, a bloodbath, killing anyone and everyone that crossed paths with. Within my mind, screaming wordlessly as everything I had ever known and loved was torn apart by my own two hands. One question plagued my mind. Why won't you let me die? I shouted it soundlessly over and over. Somehow I knew he could hear me, but he just grinned on all the harder and kept kidding. 
It wasn't long until after I figured out why he didn't kill me, move on to another, stronger body. It would have made what he did much easier. I knew he could. I'd seen it happen. Felt it happen. It was because I cared. I cared about my fellow monks. I cared about the children. I cared about the goats and even the flowers. Heaven knows I spent enough of my life helping them grow. Simply put, he took pleasure in my pain and reveled in it. It's what he did, found someone and made them rip apart the things that they loved with their own two hands, just because he enjoyed the cries and screams. Through my body, he killed a lot of people that day. Eventually, enough people in the monastery realized what was happening, banded together and planned to capture me. They thought that I'd been possessed by a demon or something of the sort. Perhaps I was. I still don't know who or what was being inside of me was. Originally, except that it was probably a man. Regardless, they had pieced together somehow that killing me would only make things worse, so intended to lock me away forever. Against all expectations, I, he, we, however you might want to call it, fled. Evidently, we thought that they might work. He fled the city where I had lived my whole life, now practically destroyed and continued along the road for the next city for a good hour. Then he stopped, and I suddenly realized that I had control over my own body again, although I could still feel his pressure lurking inside my mind. My body was covered in wounds, my clothes were little more than tattered rags. I think he knew little bit about using key, but not much, so he hadn't even been heeding himself, just taking everything that was thrown at him without a care in the world. It wasn't his body, I suppose. I started to heal myself, but then I paused. Did I want to? Have I died out there in the middle of nowhere with a road and nobody around? Maybe he wouldn't have anyone to take over. It had seemed like he had needed the old body to be in contact with the new tron to transfer over, so that he would die. Truly and completely. I didn't know. Maybe he would just move on to the nearest person, and my death would just be one small blip in his murder spree. Then again, maybe I didn't care. My world had been ripped apart after all. I had nothing left to hold on to. I raised my hands and stabbed it towards my chest, only for it to stop just about the surface of my skin. He had taken control again. My mouth opened and he spoke. Your life is mine to take. Then my body was mine again. I tried again a few times after that, with much the same results. I gave up before long and healed my body. I would try and turn from the road and walk away from civilized land, away from people that he could hurt. But he would turn me back every time. After the first couple attempts, he started breaking arms and legs as punishment. I could heal them, but pain was still agonizing. So we continued down the road. There was a stream where I cleaned off my body and we came across some other people, who he killed and took the clothes of. Not looking so much like I had taken a bath in blood, we actually managed to get into the city without much problem. Although I doubt he would have cared much if we were barred access. At the time, he didn't take control of my body and I was free to go where I wanted. As such, I went to the church. I knew nobody in the city would be able to stop him, or if there's someone who could. I didn't know it. My only hope was the gods, so I prayed silently. The priests offered to help me, but I ignored them. They would only think me mad if I told them the truth, 
So would I, if someone had told me the same thing only a few days before. For some reason, he didn't stop me. No doubt he assumed that there would be no reply. And he was right. For the most part, I prayed a dozen altars and dozen gods, telling them the terror that dwelled within my body, what it could do, and what I would give anything to stop it. It had taken away my life and then wouldn't even let me die. You could say I held a bit of the vested interest in seeing it stopped, no matter the cost. It wasn't until I stood at the altar of the God of Death, questioning the fate that had brought me to this point, that I heard a voice whispering into my mind. The God of Death? The man sitting across me questions, his tea now sitting cold in front of him. Such a waste. Of all the gods, he was the only one to reply. Thinking back, it's not such a surprise that he did, I shrugged. Of course, it is always a surprise when a god communicates with any mortal, but if one were to be interested in my situation, it would be he. It turned out, after all, that I was possessed by a wrathful, lingering spirit, which was perfectly in his domain. Never replies when I have something to say, the man grumbles. But anyway, some sort of vengeful ghost, is it? Never heard of anything like that, at least nowhere near that dangerous. I nod. I should certainly hope not. No, this one is completely unique. I doubt another of its kind would ever emerge. Probably only the god of death himself knows what terrible circumstances bore the specific monster. That's good. Dealing with something like that would suck, he muses, before casually saying something terrifying. Though, I'd probably just encase them in molten iron and teleport them into the depths of space, or something like that. Good thing there is no need for that, I caution. Yeah, you seem to have it covered, he nods. Anyway, God of Death, what happened there? Yes, of course. The God of Death informed me about the being inhabiting my body and offered me a solution. He would make me immortal. If I never died, then the spirit would never be able to pass to another. I would be its prison for eternity. That God of Death could have destroyed it, though. I mean, he is the God of Death, he interrupts me again. Why didn't he just do that? I couldn't say. I'm not the God of Death, I reply. I had asked myself the same question enough times. He shrugs. Fair enough. Regardless of his reasons, that was the offer he gave. Few are aware, but the gods of death is not just the god of death, but also the god of sacrifice. Or more specifically, self-sacrifice. His offer was true to his names. I was hesitant. If I accepted, then wouldn't the spirit be able to live forever, controlling me? But the god of death reassured me that the spirit was not as strong as it made itself seem. It could only actually control me for about an hour every day before growing tired and having to recuperate. It's because of this that I am able to isolate as I am. I am perfectly capable of leaving this valley. But even if he takes over me and does so, there is nowhere that he can go, nobody that he can hurt at you. Once he tries, I return. Once I understood that, I agreed and I became immortal. Then I find myself a map and left that place that seemed the most remote, the most abandoned. He tried to stop me, but I realized at the point that he had already used up most of his time for that day. He broke my arms, legs, whatever he could to stop me, but I just healed and kept moving. I tried entubing myself a few times, collapsing a mine while I was still in and such. 
I would be buried beneath a mountain, but still alive, unable to breathe, see, eat or drink, but alive. But eventually he dug his way out. It never held for long. Isolation ended up being the best choice. Eventually, after years of him trying to control me through pain, I grew numb to it. Now he can't even hurt me. I built myself a little house out here in this valley so no normal person can reach, dug a well, grew myself a little garden, and made myself tea set from clay. He does have a bit of a fit every now and again, but I can rebuild. As you said yourself, I have the time. I have kept practicing with Ki over the many years, paying specific attention to the resistance of certain parts of my body and neglecting others intentionally. As I stand today, even my eyes and flesh, my ears, throat and tongue, chest and every other vulnerable place are stronger than mithril. As for my limbs, they are hardly even as strong as iron. Even if he tried, he's no longer able to kill me, because I'm not able to. And he has tried a few times before when people have ventured here. That's my life nowadays. Simple, but not unfulfilling. I have my garden, the songs of the birds and the bed to sleep on. That's enough for me. I drink the last of my tea. The teapot was now empty save for the sodden clump of leaves at the bottom. Well, that's in story and a half, all right, he nods. I shrug. I'll understand if you don't believe me. No, I believe you, he says easily. I have ways of telling if people are lying. And trust me, when it comes to unbelievable stories... Mine takes the cake. Oh? I raise an eyebrow. Would you care to reciprocate by telling your own tale, then? Sure, he nods. I don't have a whole old man regaling the young uns with stories of things down to a patch yet, though. Honestly speaking, I've mostly been rather tight-lipped about it all. So, I guess you could say storytelling isn't such my thing. There's always a time left to learn, isn't there, I say. That there is, he agrees with a wry smile. My story, well, it's a bit different than most people's. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of the video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the links down below. And if you'd like to support this channel, there are numerous ways listed down below. The easiest of which would be to share this channel, subscribe, like, and comment and all the other stuff that Google wants us to push. But, anyways, until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.